Hello and welcome to another episode of Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is Phil Oppenheim. He's the chief curator for Comic-Con Lionsgate's new project, a subscription video on-demand platform aimed at Comic-Con audiences. His job is finding content, movies, television, programs, and more for the new platform. Oppenheim has done this work before. For years, he was a vice president of programming at Turner Broadcasting, where he helped find and choose content for both TNT and TBS. In our conversation, he discusses the challenges and opportunities of curating content, how the media industry has changed in some ways and stayed the same in others, and carving a niche in a digital media environment. He spoke on November 2nd, 2015, on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by Elisa Perrin. Welcome once again to our next installment of Media Industry Conversations uh, with Phil Oppenheim, who is our guest today. those of you who haven't been here uh, before, these uh, interviews are meant to give a sense of uh, the workings of the media industries, different career trajectories, um, people's personal experiences and advice. And I'd like to, as always, thank my collaborator in teaching this class, Cindy McCreary, as well as RTAs, Kyle Rather and Tim Piper. And thank you also to the RTF department and the Moody College of Communication. Okay, so digging in, a little bit about Phil, and we'll obviously get into more of these details through our conversation. Uh, Phil has been working in cable uh, previously until last year? A year ago, right now. Time is elusive. A year ago, as of two weeks ago. Okay, so until a year ago, for 25 years, he was at Turner in Atlanta, uh, finally leaving... uh, with the position of Senior Vice President of Programming for TNT and TBS, but he cycled through many different departments and divisions and experiences, which I'm sure we're going to talk about to some extent. More recently, and in his current position, although he is based out of Portland, uh, currently he is working for Lionsgate in collaboration with Comic-Con, as in San Diego Comic-Con, for their not yet launched, but announced, streaming video on demand platform. So they're basically building a platform that's like a Netflix for Comic-Con, essentially. But he'll explain more of the nuances of this. Uh, And that will be launching in 2016. So you'll be hearing more than probably most people have heard uh, about it so far. Uh, So today, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about his career trajectory from a linear platform at Turner, or linear platforms at Turner in Atlanta and the cable business, to digital streaming platforms uh, and the sort of wild west of the digital landscape and what that entails, uh, as well as his roles and responsibilities in those different positions as well as his work with both distribution and marketing as from his capacity as a programmer, how he's interacted with those, um, and his view on the cur- views on the current state of the media industries, as well as maybe a little bit of advice for all of you, especially if you don't want to live in Los Angeles or New York, uh, or you want to know what is available possibly elsewhere. So please join me in welcoming Phil Oppenheim. Okay, so Phil, question number one is, uh, how, 
how did you get started at Turner and why Atlanta? Um, this is uh, a complicated and, and strange story and I, I was trying to think how to package this and part of this is like don't do what I did uh, to get a, a career this way but part of that is you can't do what I did. I, I entered at a different time and a different way and so you couldn't do it anyway with one exception and I had really great advice from uh, I haven't mentioned this name in about 30 years. Barry Targan was, Barry Targan was, uh, when I was an undergraduate, a uh, novelist who was an English teacher, and I took his class. And uh, we were all studying abroad. I was studying abroad in England. He was the professor there. And I had an opportunity to kind of fall out of my, don't do this, uh, fall out of my studies and attend bar, basically be a uh, publican in England for a while. And I asked him, who was my Shakespeare teacher, what I should do. And he said, always seize opportunities. And it's like, that's really interesting. Seize opportunities, interesting opportunities. And that's what I did. And I became a publican for a while. That was a great story. It did nothing for my career. But I did remember, it's like, to recognize an opportunity, recognize opportunity, and seize it. That I would do if I were you. I think that's good advice. Um, but anyway, uh, how I entered into uh, media is I, when I was hunting around for a school, as you guys did, um, I went to, I looked at Emerson and Boston and NYU as, as potential schools to put me near the media center because I, I wanted a media job. And I, I looked at those schools and said, this is ridiculous. They're a lot of money and I don't know anybody in the business, so I'll never get into the business. And so I closed that door and went to the State University System in New York instead and went to, well, I'm condensing a story, went to Emory for graduate school in literature. And at the time, there was no film studies department. My mentor there was David Cook, who went on to write a history of narrative film and kind of was a Victorian studies, Victorian poetry professor who kind of morphed into this uh, history of narrative film guy and wrote the book on history of narrative film. Anyway, he was my mentor, coincidentally, sheer coincidence. Uh, but when I was at Emory doing uh, literature and a little bit of film studies, as in I was writing about Paradise Lost conceived of as a film, and my professor hated it and she hated me, but that's neither here nor there. But at the graduate student mailboxes was an ad for someone who knew something about movies and could write a little bit. And I thought, well, I could do that. I'll, I'll do this writing test. I'll, I'll call them. And they said, well, take a writing test. And I had nothing other than this piece I wrote about Moby Dick, which Orson Welles had written as a stage play. It was a review of the production of that. And I gave them that, and of course they hated it. And they said, no, write something a little more pop. Which I did that night, turned it in, and got hired by TNT, which had been on the air for a year, to uh, write and produce their program guide. And what a program guide was, was <laughs> this magazine that was devoted to the programming on TNT, and the reason why, and part of, I guess, one of the themes here, if you guys are looking for a theme for this conversation, is media and transition. The answer is, we're not in a period of media transition now. Media has always been a, a, a transitional period from, from papyrus forward. <laughs> you know, uh, fourth, I just was looking at this great book called 4,000 Years of Television, which is, it tells you something about how long everything has been in change. But anyway, I wrote this program guide because TNT's the cable network had been on the air for a year, was not in newspapers. Their listings was not in newspapers. And if you weren't print, your schedule wasn't printed in newspapers, you might as well have not existed. If you could imagine that, that there was a thing called newspapers and people would look at them to see what was on <laughs> television. 
uh, none of which happens today. But anyway, so I wrote this to replace that because we were excluded from televisions for a, a multiplicity of reasons because cable is a new kid on the block, nobody liked Ted, uh, whatever it was. And Teddy means Ted oh, Turner. Oh, Ted Turner, yeah. <laughs> I won't use that name often, but that's who that is. And this is 1989, right? 1989, 1989. So um, <laughs> what, one of the things, and another thing that you do in your life is I train myself out of a job and I became so good or the network became so strong that we didn't need the publication anymore because we started to get an electronic program guide, which just started then, to the TV Guide channel, which has since died, but whatever it's done, morphed. Uh, so that replaced us. And we got more broadly distributed, although TNT, as I recall, was one of the biggest launches in the history of cable and quickly got to, I think, 60 million homes in the first year or two. Those are rough numbers. That's going back a little while. But anyway, uh, so I was hired with an, uh, I, I got along really well because one of the lessons here is uh, network. A network doesn't mean sit in your chair and wait for people to come to you, but uh, actually find people who do what you do, like what you like, and talk to them like a person. Um, I think that's a really good thing to do, and that's what I did. And I networked with the person who ran programming for, for the network who said, hey, you, you're, you're fun to work with. Be fun to work with. That's good advice. You're fun to work with. Why don't you join us? And so I had an interview with the guy who ran the network. There were about seven people who ran the entire network at the time. And I had an interview with him, uh, and he said, sure, let's, let's do this. And what, what do you think you're worth? I remember these numbers. Too. Well, what do you what do you think you should be making? Because I knew this number was coming. This question was was coming. And one of the pieces of advice here is research a little bit. And so I did a little bit of research of what my job as a program coordinator was going to be worth. And I knew that the guy I was doing it at TBS, who's since become a friend, was making thirty thousand dollars a year. And I I came in at thirty thousand dollars is what I think this is worth. And he laughed and said, how about 15? And so my first career in <laughs> television was $15,000 a year as a program coordinator. And from there, I moved up in the ranks within programming. First to TNT, I became a, as the network grew, and we could talk about what that growth was, as we got professional sports, which is something I don't think you guys have talked about much, but we got the NFL and, and NBA for various reasons. And, and periods. As, as we got sports and got larger and larger, the departments grew. Um, ultimately, I became a v VP at TNT, then TNT and TBS combined networks. I became a VP for both networks and SVP to run both sets of networks. And so that, that's how, uh, TNT, that's 25 years in a nutshell. And then uh, <laughs> since then, I, I've had a, I've been in transition too, uh, obviously not just through that career, but I, I can see the writing on the wall, too, and I see a lot of the, the, the trends that I'm sure you're seeing. And one of the things we're talking about now is that acronym, SVOD. Um, I've been really fortunate in um, being able to leverage or at least know other people who are working on other projects who know my experience and say, hey, your experience could be used for this other idea we have. And this other idea would be going over the top. Is OTT, is that an expression you guys have heard? They've heard it a lot. <laughs> um, we're, we're thinking of doing something that is going over the top, being an SVOD channel that will appear, appeal to a certain kind of demographic. We could talk about demographics and branding. Um, we think you'd be interested in this. And it's like, yeah, that is really interesting. So um, old dogs can learn new tricks. I, I'm learning just as everybody else is along with everybody else, learning what this new medium is um, and what, what that means. 
That's a good overview to start us off. Um, maybe you can talk about what you see beyond sort of rising in the ranks and status, like key moments in your career working at Turner. Uh, perhaps I know that there were some big, yeah, some big deals there and whatnot. There were there were big deals. Turner Broadcasting is a fascinating. If any of you guys are into the the, the history uh, of what what this profession is, uh, Turner is a great. Uh, place to start. And Jen Holt, actually, who's a friend of Elisa's, uh, Dr. Perrins, is, uh, has written a great book, Empires of Entertainment, that talks about the rise of cable in particular. And I strongly recommend looking at that. When I was looking through it, it's like, yeah, that really did happen. Because some <laughs> of that, when you're in it, it's, it's a little hard to see what's happening. You see personalities, but you don't see trajectories as much. It's, it's a little strange. Uh, but one of the things that's absolutely true is you already use the expression Wild West. Cable at, the, at its origins was the Wild West. Nobody exactly knew how to program these services. Uh, nobody even knew if people would like them or what kind of content to stick on them. I was very lucky to have a great mentor uh, in my side of the business. And I already referred to her once, but I'll name, her, I'll name names. Lisa Mattis was, and I, this is an interesting transition too. She used to be the program director for KTLA in Los Angeles, which is one of the strongest, and to this day, one of the strongest independent channel stations in the country is KTLA-LA, and she devel developed that station. She was trained by watching things like the Z Channel in Los Angeles, but also by a love of movies and series. And what she did was create an environment where, uh, being an independent station, she didn't have original content, but so it's like, what do you, what do, you do with this content? What do you, what do you run? And the idea of repurposing content and repackaging it in a way that makes it interesting, um, Jared Compare talks about this, uh, making reruns interesting in a way that other people haven't. How, how do you treat that differently? That, that was something that Lisa Mattis taught me how to do and something that I've done throughout my career and hope to do again, which is to say you have something that's already made. How do you shape that away to make it new or intrigue somebody else by it or make it popular? Anyway, that, that was at the origins of what we were doing in basic cable. Uh, Nickelodeon was doing a very similar thing. MTV at the beginning was doing a very similar thing. We have these music videos. What do we, how do we shape this in such a way? They went a different route and, and more of original programming, as did Nickelodeon. Uh, but the Turner networks did, were in the repurposing business for a lot of, a lot of years. So that for, and starting with TBS, actually, too. But at uh, TNT, what we did is, okay, we, we know how to repurpose content. How do we do more of that? And I was lucky enough to come into the business when Ted had just purchased a year before the, the studios that everyone called him an idiot. You're an idiot. What do you buy that old junk for? Uh, the MGM uh, Pre-48, Warner Brothers Pre-48 and RKO Theatrical Libraries, Ted Turner bought. And everyone called that Ted's Folly at the time. Why would you buy this old crap? Uh, and he said, well, I'm going to make a network out of it. That plus original movies, which he did do, and that was TNT. Uh, my career as transition is one of the things we did, and one of the sad things, and one of the great things about OTT right now and Netflix and Hulu is nobody's looking at the ratings. Ratings are the bane of existence for, for almost anything. As soon as you start, um, this is from quantum mechanics, I guess. As soon as you measure something, you kill it and change it. Absolutely, that's true, and it's true for ratings. And before TNT was really accurately measured, we were able to, or it has to do with ad sales too, but uh, 
measured it in a real sense. We were able to do the craziest things ever. And so at the beginning of my career, I was, I had written and produced a show that we used to run late nights called uh, Trailer Camp. I don't know if you know that. We used to run trailers together and it was a crazy show that I wrote and produced. I would uh, cut promos with promo producers, uh, write copy sometimes, edit uh, our show Witchblade a little bit. So. People did multiple things. Part of that is because there were no union restrictions in Atlanta, which is a whole different thing to talk about. But part of it was also that it was a wild west and everybody could do everything. Nowadays, television, it's true. This new world, not so much, was one of the big trends is professionalization, I would say, of the industry. I don't know if anybody else has talked about that. So that if you're a marketing person, you do marketing. If you're in PR, you do PR. If you do development, you do development. And those can be siloed, and often people will talk about breaking down those silos so people can do multiple things. It doesn't happen as often as I think we would all like, uh, but it's, it's, we're all aware of it. We, we, being in the industry, are aware of the silos, try to break them down, and then they rebuild, or whatever ways. This new world, much less siloed, and we could talk a little bit about that, too. Uh, so I was on uh, transitions in the business. So, so there was that kind of micro level, what I was doing day to day change. But there are also the macro level, and that's the guys who call the shots, right? And these are the companies on the industrial side that change your life. Uh, one of them was Ted Turner had a very real presence uh, at the network, at the origins, um, especially because he was green lighting movies for people to make. He, if you think of what he looks like, he loves Gone with the Wind. The first movie TNT ran was Gone with the Wind. That's not a coincidence. He bought the, the library that Gone with the Wind resides in. Is coincidence? I don't know, you know? He, he looks just like Rhett Butler, right? So. Um, reading biographies of Ted Turner can be a fascinating he's, thing. He's a fascinating man, and, and, and obviously very brilliant and troubled and a conflicted genius and all these other things. That I, you know, he's an amazing character and a, a true visionary, even if he wasn't a, a, a mogul. And, a, and something, he's got a soul, too. If anybody knows the expression, mensch, he's a little bit of a mensch. He used to give away a lot of money, like to the UN and a variety of other things. I don't think they make right. him like that anymore. I'm sorry? Until Time Warner lost it. And right. then, <laughs> I'm trying to build there are these corporate shenanigans, too, that happened that shake down, too. And one of them was that Ted, being a visionary, realized that being the odd man out running this little Atlanta station, and he had the genius to say, if I bounce it off a satellite and call it a super station, I could buy things at, at an independent station level, programming them all over the country, and reap incredible revenue off this little payment. And, and the rest is history. And that's, that's the evolution of the super station. Anyway. Uh, he said, I can't do that forever. I'm going to have to ally with a bigger company. And the bigger company, in this case, was Time Warner. And that was, was honestly a great relationship because he all of a sudden he, had, he was a player at the table. He became a board member for a much bigger company. And this was, what, 1995, right? Yeah, roughly, right around there. Sold Turner to Time Warner. Yeah, and we're building to, that, that, this is the good side. This, so that, that Ted is on the board of Time Warner and everything is great. We have access to great libraries. Access is not the same as free, by the way. Access means you're able to pay the, the going rate for content that you wouldn't otherwise. But you have a seat at the table. You are a major studio. Time Warner became the world's biggest, the, how do we say, the world's biggest entertainment company? Which is true, not true anymore, I don't think. Um, still a, a major, but not, not the world's biggest. Because they also had Time, uh, time Life, uh, you name it, they, they had the division, whether it was print or comics, DC Comics or whatever it was. 
Warner Communication was big already, and then when it became Time Warner, it was huge. But anyway, a behemoth. Um, so that was the good kind of synergy. The bad kind of synergy, I think I could say, enough bodies have been buried at this point, was the AOL merger, <laughs> which um, I lost, I personally lost a lot of money in that because they, one of the ways uh, they, you get compensated in some of these companies is in shares of stock. So they, they'll say, well, especially, well, I'll, I'll remove some places that may not pay a lot and say, well, don't worry, you're getting all this great stock. You know, that's what startups do, right? You're getting all this great stock. And when everything's taking off like a rocket, you hear about stuff like online innovation. It's like, fantastic. Uh, I'll remember one of my bosses saying, uh, don't buy a car with that money. That's stupid. You keep it in the stock. That's, that's what's going to be great. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the, the pictures of what happened at post-AOL. Like pre-AOL. And so this was 2000, that AOL, this is the first wave of thinking that everything was converging and, and you know, the future was AOL for media, right? And at the time, <laughs> and I, I'm not the only person to say this, at the time it seemed like a good idea. The way it, it was pre presented was, you know, this, this is the future. And so your ear should always prick up. If you're looking at trends, be wary of anybody who tells you what the future is, because nobody knows what the future is. I can guarantee that I know. Nobody knows what the future is. But these guys were telling us, especially um, to name names, Steve Case, Jerry Levin, and just all these guys, uh, were said, this is the future. This is going to be awesome. Don't, don't cash these checks. Uh, didn't pan out that way for a variety of reasons. You can read about in books and litigation and, and whatever. Uh, but let's just say it didn't pan out that way. But the AOL years were interesting years, too, because uh, what we tried to do was synergy. So what we would try to do is, if you guys are too young to remember when there were these DVDs all over, every, wherever they were distributed alternative weeklies, you would get these DVDs that say, AOL's tried us for free or whatever it was. Um, so easy to use, no, no, so easy to use, no wonder it's number one. Remember that? It's, we, would, <laughs> we would run, TNT and TBS would run those commercials every hour, actually more than that. Uh, as part of this synergy. We would do AOL Presents on TNT as part of the synergy. Uh, synergy is, a, have you guys studied synergy or know anything about the word? Synergy is a, a loaded term. Um, when it works, it's, it's synergy. When it doesn't work, it's failure. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the problem, there are many problems with it. And the, the key problem is everybody wants if I had to say, this is me pontificating, I don't, I'm not representing the views of any of my previous employers, uh, but everybody sooner or later likes to get paid, which means if we're working for the same company, I'm not going to cut you a deal because I can make the same deal with this guy over here who's going to pay me. If I have a thing that's worth $100 and you'll pay me 50 and some other guy will pay me 100 why would I take your 50 And if the answer is there's no reason, then synergy doesn't work. And so you ultimately have to figure out that's oversimplifying, but you get the idea. So sooner or later, you have to take somebody else's money or as I want to say that it was Kellner. It might have. It was Jeff Bukas, my last boss, the guy who runs Time Warner, said, "Quote: Synergy is bullshit. You can hunt around." I think he's kind of expunged that line, but synergy is kind of bullshit because unless you're Disney, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> unless you crack the nut somehow, yeah, and yeah. and synergy is it, it's one of these things that goes like this. Everybody hates synergy until it works, and and Disney is an incredible powerhouse of synergy because. 
uh, I, I don't doubt the new Star Wars movie will have Mickey Mouse in there, and they're somewhere, you know, and, uh, you know, Iron Man will shovel uh, Mickey's body in there somehow. I don't know. What, but they, they, they obviously, they did it a smart way in, in owning copyrights, and Ted did that too. Ted yeah. bought as many copyrights as he can. IP is a whole different thing. That's Owning a lot of IP is super smart, in my opinion. You can never go wrong, because you never know. I don't believe in the long tail so much. Um, I think that that's a little mystification, but I, I think owning IP, especially ones that people care about and have legacy, and uh, that, pe that people have emotional, excuse me, ties to, uh, that, that is a really good thing. So anyway, th that, that, those are the dark days. Um, we do, those days went away. I'm trying to remember where else, how those corporate pressures weighed in. But once, oh, and then uh, there, there are smaller gyrations of those kind of things. So that, for instance, one of those years was the interaction of the WB and TNT and TBS. And the, the WB years, I'm trying to remember, that was Jamie Kellner and Garth here, and Jordan Levin, who is a graduate of here. Came in here at the start of the semester. And um, we worked with those guys. We had, um, can I tell an off-color? This is uh, one of the things that said, this might have to get expunged from the It's account. okay. We'll expunge freely. Um, one of the ways it was explained to us is we had an understanding. Uh, we were under and they were standing. So um, <laughs> you know, but basically what we were for a while was uh, a revenue source for the WB because the WB was financially strapped at the very beginning. And uh, so they were producing great stuff. And I, I think, in my opinion, they were better than the CW. The WB really understood his brand and made incredible Oh, they shows. had Joss Whedon and J.J. Abrams. Uh, amazing. They really, uh, they, they found their target. They found a niche. And the, one of the keys in broadcasting, which may be relevant, maybe not, is find a niche that isn't spoken to or a constituency that nobody else is talking to for whatever reason and target them. Uh, because that, that can bring benefits. And in the WB's case, what they did from a brand perspective and a demo perspective was to say, nobody's talking to young people. Uh, television's for old women. By old women, I mean like 35 plus. But uh, television's for old women. Why don't we look at somebody else? And, and so that was the WB success. There was a lag time between them going on the air and them getting revenue for it. And so the revenue came from their friends. Both their revenue and the promotional power came from their friends at Turner Broadcasting because we would promote their shows, we would buy their shows, and, and so there was that kind of relationship. Those years ended too because I'm trying to put it together. The WB merged with UPN at the time to form the CW, and so they were out of our hands, and Garth Antier walked away from me, which is that's fine, and one of those things I'll have to drop, that's fine too. And, and so we came into our own, of course, too. And then towards the end, as uh, Jeff Bukas decided to focus Time Warner on the core properties and get rid of Time Magazine and get rid of AOL eventually. Uh, the Turner Networks became more central, and the Turner Networks now account for a giant share of the profits. It's uh, it, the golden, uh, the, the uh, jewels in the crown uh, of the Time Warner empire now are HBO and the Turner Broadcasting Networks. Well, and what's, what's been interesting watching Time Warner's evolution is, you know, it became this mega monolith, right, with sports teams, you know, with uh, magazines, publishing. Wrestling. Hmm? wrestling, wrestling right. Wrestling. Uh, so many dip music, uh, so many different media ventures, and in the last few years, it's basically just stripped itself down Perhaps. to filmed entertainment, which is why there's been a lot of conversation about, will you know, Fox tried to buy Time Warner, or will it merge with another company, or that sort of thing. Right? Yeah, and, and that has been fascinating. And it, 
the, the effects of those do trickle down, and I'll show you how exactly in, in a second. Because you guys might have read about some of these initiatives last year. Uh, but as the company got smaller, I had a, a super smart boss. And if we get to talk about marketing, I had a super smart boss uh, a while ago whose previous job was to run marketing for Coca-Cola. So that, that's where he, his background was. And when he came on, we became a marketing powerhouse. That's really what our focus was as a network. But anyway, uh, he always said that it was a double-edged sword to be the center of the company because, yes, you get all the attention, but you also get all the attention, which means if we caught a, si uh, caught a cold, Time Warner got sick. And one of those things that's happening, and you can see it right now in the transition, is... Um, as television ratings seem challenged, as younger viewers go somewhere else, as uh, advertisers start questioning <coughs> CPMs and taking their money elsewhere, these, the numbers of the business start getting stressed a little bit. And if that happens, that becomes trickle down to employees every time, because you can imagine how that works out. Uh, because sooner or later, you, you have to... Cutting revenue does not work for Wall Street. Cutting profit margins does not work for Wall Street. So you have to figure out what to do after that. And that's when you see a lot of convulsions, as you're seeing both in this company, but lots of companies. ESPN just laid off how many people again? Hundreds, yeah. Um, it doesn't always pan out in terms of layoffs, but that's, that's a quick go-to for my opinion, not the opinion of my, any of employers, is that's a quick fix for Wall Street, I think. They, they seem to like that because it shows streamlining and getting serious. One thing uh, that's sort of worth emphasizing is how much Turner was bound to and continues to be bound to some extent to Atlanta, right? Um, and so when you're talking about Turner in Atlanta, you're not just talking about TBS and TNT. You're talking about CNN, obviously, to a certain extent. TCM, which you were involved in, right? Yeah. Um, Cartoon Network. Yeah. For, <laughs> and each of the, it's an interesting story because every single one of those was homegrown in, in Atlanta. And prime, if I had to guess... A lot of that has to do with Ted himself being a, such a fixture in Atlanta. It, the, the stadium for the Braves used to be called the Ted, right? He used to own the Braves. Uh, he owned the Hawks, too? Is that right? I think. I think he owned the Hawks, too. He owned WCW Wrestling, which was based in Atlanta. So he, he was in a, he's a son of Atlanta, and he, he believes in the New South. He is a great model for the New South. But labor is also a factor, too, right? Yeah, I was going to build to that. But yeah, oh, sorry. So labor is a factor, too. <laughs> um, in the same way that if you work in a satellite office, so for instance, if uh, there's a, disc a discount, let's call it the Atlanta discount. So uh, if... Let's say I worked for the Weather Channel. The Weather Channel's based in Atlanta. And the, the Weather Channel uh, paid its executives $10. If that same job were in New York, they would be obligated to pay them $17. In Los Angeles, it would be $16. That's roughly the proportion uh, of what they would say to equalize. So you get the idea. Um, Plus right-to-work state. Yeah. Should I talk about it? Yeah, it's, no, I think that they should know. You know. Um, some places have uh, strong unions, and some places are uh, right-to-work states. And so uh, Georgia is a right-to-work state, and so there's no strong union representation, uh, uh, if any at all. I remember times when unions have tried to work their way in, but interestingly, neither the executives nor the employees really wanted that because it... it I'll, I'll sound like the corporate guy for two seconds. It introduced a, a, a different kind of relationship and a different kind of tension 
that was a little different. Uh, people in Atlanta don't feel that way because so much of it, oddly, was family for so long. And so many people like me had been there for so long and worked their way up that it didn't seem to be a problem. And one of the things in terms of advice for, for people in various professions, one interesting thing is the guy who runs cartoon, uh, I'm sorry, Adult Swim? You guys watch Adult Swim, anybody? Mike Lazo, a friend of mine, he worked his way up from the mailroom. He is the guy who invented Toonami, Sean Aikens, worked his way up from the mailroom. Uh, these were guys who, that was the old Turner way. I can't speak to it now, uh, but when it came, these were the kind of stories we would tell. It's like, this wouldn't happen in a union environment. That would never have happened. So, so it, uh, there are two sides of it, even though, you know, Outside of the classroom, I'll may, maybe sound a little differently, but just to uh, present a little bit of an even-handed argument. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. Um, maybe you can talk about what some of your roles and responsibilities were at Turner towards the time that you left, and, sure. and maybe compare it to what you're doing now at sure. Lionsgate. Um, yeah, if I had a flow chart, it'd be a little easier to, to show you, but um, okay, TNT and TBS, the two big networks, right? Yeah, you guys familiar with both of them? Both basic cable networks, uh, which means you don't, you don't pay for them. They're free cable, which means you pay for them with your subscription, of course. Um, so you pay for them, and you pay uh, through your subscription, and you pay through watching the commercials, which I hope you watch the commercials, because I'm sure you all do. <laughs> because you don't steal. You're not cord shavers or uh, cord cheaters. Anybody a cord cheater? You don't have to. You know what cord cheater is? That's using your parents or somebody else's or stealing the service. I haven't heard that term before. I, I just saw it today. I thought it was a good one. Um, because Netflix, that's, that's critical for Netflix. It's going to be critical for my future, too. Anyway, so um, I ran TNT and TBS programming. So what does that mean? Basically, anything that was on the air that wasn't a promo, although I had some involvement with the promotion, wasn't a commercial, and wasn't a piece of sport in that I didn't play a sport, but I, I scheduled around the sport and scheduled promotion for it, and wasn't a piece of original production, although I, I weighed in. My, j just to show you the corporate structure above me, I was the head of TNT and TBS programming. My boss was the head of programming, which meant originals too. And then his boss was the guy around the network. So I, I had a say in the original programming, like a vote in the room, I, I guess, kind of thing. Uh, but it wasn't really my, my direct purview, other than uh, scheduling it and promoting around it and figuring out scheduling opportunities to make them work. But every other aspect of what hit the air was what I did. So I, for instance, I bought series, I bought movies, scheduled series, scheduled movies, and oversaw the scheduling of those things uh, for multiple years out. Usually, uh, we, we can, I don't know if this is boring or interesting, you can talk about it before class or during class or after class or whatever, but um, you, when you buy content for a, a network, a broadcast network or a cable network, you don't buy it for the next six months. You buy it for, you, you look as far as 10 years out. You're buying horizons about 10 years out because you amortize, pay for it, amortization, you guys know anything about this? Um, you amortize it over many years, just the way you pay for your car over years, or your house over years. You pay for program in the same way, typically over the life of your contract. So for instance, if, if I saw a movie like Spectre today, it's like, wow, that's a, a great movie, let's buy it. It probably wouldn't be available for, first it goes into, there's no more broadcast window anymore. It used to be a broadcast <laughs> window, broadcast window, pay, what they called pay one, then another broadcast window or broadcast syndication, then pay two, and then it would go to, to uh, cable. The, those windows are changing all the time, so don't, you don't have to memorize that. Nobody even cares anymore about that because people jump in and out. 
various windows. But the long story short is we, you probably wouldn't see it for 30 months or roughly. Um, Spectre wouldn't be on the air for, on basic cable for 30 or so months. Um, so you wouldn't start to have it then, and then you might have a two-year, four-year, five-year license. So you would pay for it over that amount of time. It might go away to a different service over a couple of years, so you kick it further and further. So all, all those relationships, all those acquisitions, is what I did. And you made some pretty big acquisitions. I don't know if you want to... Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. One of the things we were talking about is like, what, what are you proud of stuff? We could talk about that uh, later on. But um, what it, I'm reminded of this conversation because I was watching one of my bosses, who will be nameless here, um, talking about what well, somebody asked him what he was proudest of. And, uh, he's, and he, was, he did a lot of original programming, did a lot of stuff. And he said, well, I think uh, the Big Bang Theory acquisition was the, my, my probably proudest achievement. And I was looking at it and I was like, you had nothing to do with that. <laughs> FYI. You know, I was on the phone all weekend long, all night long, trying, working with uh, Linda Yaccarina, who now runs ad sales for NBC Universal, who's done very well for herself. She, uh, I'll give it up for her, any, a brilliant woman. She's fantastic. Uh, she and I and a couple other people worked very hard to get that show. And we weren't alone. I would never take uh, credit for it. But that's one of the, the big really big acquisitions we got because um, not only was it was expensive it was really expensive uh, but it turned out to be in what in a miraculous state of affairs we actually underpaid for it in the sense that it blew up after we the programmers dream right it blew up after we bought it so it became a much bigger deal after we bought it and Actually, when we had it on the air, we pr sometimes this happens, not always, it happens with Supernatural, it happens with some other things. Uh, when something is in cable or syndication, it can become a bigger deal as people grow to like it. And people grew to love Big Bang Theory, and it became a bigger and bigger show, and worked in syndication really well, worked on our air, made every, what are they pulling down, a million bucks an episode? You guys probably know better than I do. Um, so it, it, that's probably the biggest of the acquisitions. Probably the second biggest in that it was absolutely transformative. That was TBS acquisition. Uh, absolutely transformative for TNT was Law & Order. Hmm. Because back then, it's hard to believe, but when Law & Order was working, it was actually already on the air. Just plain old mothership, what they call the mothership Law & Order, was already on the air. It was on A&E. Up seasons one through six, I believe, or one through five, seasons one through five, were on the air on A&E. And they were working okay. They were really doing okay. But uh, at the time, they, it came time, year five, came time for, to ne negotiate season six. And uh, they said, okay, we're, we're, it was NBC Universal, I believe, is the distributor. And they said, you know what, it's a great show, we're glad to have it, but we're doing a lot of original programming. We don't want to invest as much as you're asking for. We're going to leave it here. This is our best offer. And they contacted us and said, well, this is A&E's best offer. Do you have a better offer? And we did. And so we took 
law and order away from A&E. And again, it was working, it was running four or five o'clock in the afternoon every day, I think, something like that. And it was doing very well. We put it on our air. We couldn't run it four or five o'clock in the afternoon because that's where they were running it. So we decided to run it six and seven, and then maybe a little bit in prime time. And then law and order took off like a rocket. All of a sudden it became, this is a show I need to watch every day. People became addicted to law and order. It's like, if it, wait a second, if it's good at six and seven, it's great at eight and nine. How about eight, nine, 10? How about Monday through Friday, eight, nine, 10? And all, TNT became the number one cable network in 18 to 49 for years, for year, three or four years, which is unheard of basically. And People hate that story, especially, uh, let me put it this way, people in development, original <laughs> series development for the cable networks, hate, the, hate Law and Order, well, I shouldn't put it that, some people, short-sighted ones, hate Law and Order and hate Big Bang Theory. Why? Because it's like, I'm making, let me use another network, I'm making Longmire, okay? And this piece of shit 20-year-old show is doing better than Longmire? Are you kidding me? And so... But say la vie, that's what happens. And so they hate that story. But the reality is TNT became number one network for many years in the golden demo of 18 to 49, off the back of Law & Order, which was a brilliant acquisition. I wish I could say no, nothing has one master in, in television and broadcast especially. But my boss at the time, Brad Siegel, was the guy who was one of the main guys, who's a name you don't even hear that much anymore. He's at, I want to say, TV One now. He used to be at the Gospel Music Channel. I believe he runs TV One. Uh, but he, he pushed like a mad dog for us to get uh, Law and Order, and it absolutely paid off. And his subsequent employees all reaped the benefit. And so I won't give it up for Brad because few people do. Well, and one of the misperceptions, I think, from a lot of people is that it's the originals that are getting the big ratings. But Big Bang Theory, for example, right, still is one of the highest rated cable reruns but not just reruns, cable series, period, yeah, I right? Can't, I can't speak to TBS lately because uh, I haven't been there for a while. <laughs> you no <don't> longer <laughs> pay attention. <laughs> so I, I look at the ratings, but I, I'm like y'all. You know, I'm just a spectator now. But I know that one of the values, let's put it this way. One of the, if you look at uh, TV by the numbers or anything like that three or four years ago, you would see it would be very easy to figure out the top ten shows in cable. It was simple. It was Big Bang Theory and Family Guy. Uh, neither of which was a cable original, which killed a lot of people. But the, you know, but the, the value of that, and and this is why, and my boss understood this. And I, I, I think the the current people at TBS, I know the programming people, and I think the original development people understand it too. Is they really shouldn't hate those things. They should they should uh, relish it and, and just uh, roll themselves in it as long as possible. Because what it does is it gives you a promotional promotional leg up and anything else you can do. So what you do is obviously you schedule whatever original you want behind this big thing. You promote the hell out of it in this big thing. And if you're smart, you'll try to pitch the, the original series to the, the, the sense of whatever, with the magic of whatever it is that, that show is that you're, you're trying to create. So the, for instance, the TBS had a show called King of the Geeks. Do you ever... King of the Nerds, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, King of the Nerds, we had it on for several years. Came immediately out of Big Bang Theory, and the idea was, uh, let's, it's a reality show, su very successfully in year one, as a matter of fact, where we would follow a bunch of real life nerds as they tried to get dates and whatever it was that they do, various challenges. Uh, that, that felt a little on the nose to me, to be, to be honest, but there, there have been other things. So, so for instance, TBS did original episodes of American Dad. 
as an example. We did original episodes of animated shows like Neighbors from Hell in an attempt to try to corral the same audience or uh, speak promotionally to the same audience. So that's why it's, and if push comes to shove, I think a development person would honestly say, I'm so glad you have it. Because if you don't have it, then you're in the hinterlands and good luck, you know, because then you get no one to look at your promos. Well, tied to promos, so how or to what extent did you, did you work on marketing or, or with marketing and distribution? Um, Honestly enough, my dark secret is I, I began my career in the marketing department. When I was doing my program guide, and, and everyone back in, in the old days who knew that would make fun of me because I like to make fun of marketing because that's one of those natural animosities and, and in television. Everybody hates everybody, right? So I, but they're, they're friends, but you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, programming and marketing are, are one of those natural animosities. I began in the marketing department doing my program guide uh, so I, I, I was a little bit in enemy territory, but I, I always worked alongside marketing. And actually, one of my best friends at the network is the chief marketing officer currently um, for the Turner Networks, who's a great guy named Jeff Greger, who, is, uh, who supervises that. But yeah, my, my role within marketing in the old days, as I said, I would cut promos or at least write promos, and we would create festivals and uh, all kinds of franchises, which is the same kind of thing as a movie franchise uh, festival, like the Alamo does. We would create festivals with an eye towards promoting them, and so towards marketing. How would we market this thing? How would we market this movie? So we did something called Our Favorite Movies. Nobody's old enough to remember that. Our, our Favorite Movies would find a movie and find some kind of celebrity and pair them together and have them talk about it in an attempt to creating a marketing vehicle for the movie, but also a, 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 to show another division, a press story. So our PR person would have something to go out with. Give me a reason to talk about Boys Town, because otherwise it's just an old crummy movie running on the air. Well, Newt Gingrich just talked about how we need to go back to Boys Town. You know, uh, it was awful. That was, this is a bad example. Because <laughs> we should never have done this. But so we had Newt Gingrich <laughs> hosting Boys Town on our air. It became a news story. Um, for whatever, you guys know Newt Gingrich, right? He's the guy with the horns, right? But, um, <laughs> you could cut that too. He is, he is. Um, and a Georgian, too, a good, a good yeah. example of. There's a lot of them rolling um, there. But anyway, so yeah, we would work, and still to this day, uh, we, we could jump into that world too, if you like. Yeah. Um, to this day, working alongside marketing, we don't have our marketing team in place, and what's so fascinating about the world of OTT and SVOT, SVOD, and I'm, I can't tell too much, uh, because we're still assembling our team, which is great. It, that's one of the things that reminds me of the Wild West of old time cable. It's like, let's see if this works. And so we're, we're getting, uh, I, I think our boss has a marketing person in mind, he's not announced yet, but we are, it's a team of no more than 10 people are running this thing. Um, Directly, the people who are working on individual series and things obviously would be a lot more. But it's a very small, tight team, which is like TNT and TBS at the beginning, and TCM, definitely. TCM at the beginning was Ted saying, what if we took all the old movies that you guys aren't running anymore and run them on this other thing? And it's like, that, that's kind of genius, Ted. Um, so maybe you can talk. John Feldheimer, oh. Oh. just on that, uh, John Feldheimer, who reminds me of Ted in a lot of ways. Head of Lionsgate. Head of Lionsgate said, we have a giant library of stuff. What if you guys use that as raw material to build this other thing? And it's like, that's sort of genius. Yeah, so uh, you 
went right where I was wanting you to go. So maybe as much as you can, can you kind of talk about what it is that you're doing now and what's similar or different from what you were doing at TBS and TNT, what you're doing with Comic-Con, the SBOD service? One of the great things about it, and I, I shouldn't talk about it before I describe it, is um, I'm learning stuff every single day, including today with an email that said, my, my boss said, you have to turn this around by tomorrow. And I was like, well, yeah. It's, but um, <laughs> internet time, they used to call that internet time, right? But um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm print time, you know. That's, <laughs> that's, um, but anyway, um, what I'm doing is Comic-Con, as you guys know what Comic-Con is, right? Well, you think you know what Comic-Con is. What's Comic-Con? Just out of curiosity, what's Comic-Con? Pretty much like fantasy and like the whole comic world and superheroes. And um, yes, but if that's like uh, one of those, that's uh, the opposite of what you're supposed to do in improv, right? Yes, but. <laughs> yes, and, but uh, yes, but. Comic-Con is also something very specific. You can't hear the hyphen, and when I say it, Comic-Con hyphenated, uh, what I'm referring to is Comic-Con International, which is a company that runs Comic-Con in San Diego, San Diego Comic-Con, and WonderCon, which used to be in Anaheim and is now in Los Angeles, two of the biggest Comic-Con. San Diego Comic-Con arguably is the biggest, although New York Comic-Con fights it for that, that title, in terms of attendees, in terms of industry focus, I think it's unquestionably San Diego Comic-Con. That's when you read all the stories that come on, oh, Ant-Man 2 is greenlit, oh, Avengers 7 is awesome, or whatever it is, any of these stories, that all comes from San Diego Comic-Con. Everybody is there, everybody's in attendance. Even people who say they're not in attendance, like Disney, Marvel, are in attendance, like Disney, Marvel, they were there in, in different ways. Everybody is there. You have to be there. It's the absolute central marketing event for the year. If you have anything dealing with gaming, young people, comic books, action adventure, sometimes even none of those things. Saturday Night Live was there this year, and it's like, what's the connect? Parks and Rec was there. Why? I, because young people are there, and um, young people are our very desirable commodity. You may have heard that. <laughs> uh, very it's desirable. every July, right? July-ish. Yes. Yeah, mid-July. Yeah. Mid-July. Um, WonderCon is earlier in the year of uh, March-ish, late March. This year is March 25th. Uh, and I think Comic-Con is uh, the 17th through the 21st or something like that. Um, so what I'm doing is, the idea is, how do you bring Comic-Con to life? How do you, you, whatever it is that people love about, has anybody ever been to San Diego Comic-Con? Can I do some polling? Can I ask questions? Sure, you? yeah. Why, why not? Money. Money? Yeah, travel. Travel? Too far? Anybody want to go? Yeah. I'm giving out to, no, I'm not. I'm not Oprah, there's a, there's a car outside, but tickets, no. It's, uh, because one of the things we want to do is I think people who attend Comic-Con are absolute fanatics. And if you're into the stuff you, it's, and you've been, you've, I've, I don't think I've ever met anybody who goes to Comic-Con who has, hasn't been many times to Comic-Con. It, it becomes this kind of ritual. And what we're trying to capture is that kind of fanaticism, bringing it to people like you. So maybe, maybe if you can't, we still want you to go to Comic-Con. Go to Comic-Con if you can afford it. Oh, I'm sorry, it sold out already because it sells out within an hour, by the way. So I could buy your ticket, oh, too late. But whenever it goes on sale, you have to buy within an hour. But anyway, if you can't go, if you were there at hour 63, minute 63, or whatever it is, we want to create the experience that's the next best thing to Comic-Con. So what does that mean? Uh, that's what I'm working on. And what that means in part is 
Um, I'm kind of describing it as a three-legged stool. It's not quite as visual in that, or, or it won't be literally that way when we put it on air either, whatever on air means in an OTT space. I, I don't know what the right word is anymore. Um, but one of the, the pieces will be archival and live streaming content from the con itself, which is pretty fantastic. I don't know if you guys watch, uh, New York Comic Con did some of this stuff. It looked uh, interesting. The content was interesting. It didn't look great, so we'll say. As one small example, this was something that was announced. There is a, uh, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm pitching something, but it's awful, it's okay. I'm sorry. Uh, there was something called the Her Universe pageant, if anybody's ever heard of, aren't there any nerds in here? Come on, people. It's like, anybody read, <laughs> anybody read comic books in here? I see one, uh, you can admit it, we're, you know, we're a, no judgment, okay, one or two is. Y'all should read comic books. This, these are the golden years. This, I've never seen comic books as good as they are right now. And that's, that's really true. And that includes the golden age, silver age. Comic books have never, in my opinion, never been better. I don't know if Collie would say something else. But it's amazing. <laughs> and part of that is because anything that existed is also available now. So if it's like, I hear about this guy, Jack Kirby. You can read everything you want about Jack Kirby. And, and so it's an amazing time to be a comic book reader. So I strongly encourage anybody to read comics. And I have no interest in that. And you can pick them up for free in my office, too. There's a whole stack of them you can get for free. <laughs> they're, they're not cheap. They're three to five bucks for what they call a floppy in the business, those the, the individual monthlies. Anyway, now I am far afield. Uh, one of the things we we're doing is streaming content and, we hope, and archival material from Comic-Con. I'm going to try something out on you. In 1975, George Lucas was at Comic-Con announcing this cool thing that he was putting together called Star Wars. Um, wouldn't it be cool for you to see a recording of that? We, we don't have that. But <laughs> you guys have. I'm thinking if you guys have that recording, we'll talk to me about it because we'd love to have that. But that kind of stuff, that, there is a... That's an example of what we don't have. But we do have everything that, that's been recorded that the major studios have seen over the years. So anyway, that's uh, part one. Part two is going to be a lot of original programming. Um, my boss comes from Nerdist. Is, does anybody check out Nerdist Industries? Or, uh, he used to run a production for Nerdist. His name's Seth Laterman. He's great and kind of a visionary for this kind of culture, too. And what we're trying to collect, we have a development guy in place who um, is I don't th know if that's better now, so I shouldn't say that. Um, but what we're looking for is compelling content for this demographic, for the psychographic and demographic. So that means everything from, we haven't bought anything yet other than this Her Universe pageant. Ah, I got back. Her Universe is this live event that happens at Comic-Con where uh, people design uh, what they call geek couture for, based on comics and sci-fi and fantasy and all that stuff, being inspired by that high couture uh, based on that, there's a fashion show at the event, and you you vote for your favorite designer. That that event has been bought by us by by Comic Con, and we're going to turn that into a television show. You can imagine it. Uh, you can imagine you've seen shows like this where you would follow the individual designers probably, and and see this event. And I hope that we can get people at home to vote too. I think it could be a pretty cool thing. Uh, so that was the first piece of content that we're actually going to do. Um, for the platform. But anyway, so that's the second part uh, is that kind of original content. And the third piece is acquired content. And I'm really excited about this too because this is my wheelhouse. This is my job. And it's, the question is what movies and series and even web series uh, would 
our guys and girls be into checking out? Yeah, what's your demo or your demographic psychographic? Work in progress. Okay. I, I, I use the word demo because I, I think of young people, but when you go to Comic-Con, one of the fascinating things, and Comic-Con is a really interesting company. They know their business. Obviously, they've grown it to an incredible place. But one of the things that's so interesting about Comic-Con is it's not just, what do you, who do you think's at Comic-Con? Demographically. I hope you mean that in a really complimentary way. <laughs> uh, but yes, yes, and yes. San there. I'm sorry? Yes. 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 Old, and remember, I live in Portland, Oregon, so you know, you, you all think that you invented keep Austin weird, but we're perfecting it, you know. It's, um, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, all, all that said, uh, yes, yes, and yes. It's young people, lots of young people. And by that, young men. Yes, it's the old dudes. Uh, there's a great book called, um, I think it's called The Business of Comic-Con. I forgot the guy's name. Oh, Rob yeah. Salco, I believe his name. Salco, Salco, something like that. Mm -hmm. It was written a, a, about this uh, from the business perspective. So demographically, yes, but the killer app for Comic-Con is women. Half of comics buyers today are women. Uh, half the attendees, I would say, are in these golden, or a good chunk of the attendees are that golden demo of young women. Uh, what the, the mind blower is families, meaning young men, young women with little kids, strollers with kids dressed as the Incredible Hulk in the stroller. That's Comic-Con. That is absolutely one of the faces of Comic-Con. And so what we're trying to do is to, we keep talking about appealing to the bullseye of the target, but this is a rich target. There are a lot of different sub-demos in here. There are gamers. How many of you play video games? There you go. There are gamers. I know I get something. Come on. Uh, gamers, comic book fans, movie fans. Anybody ever see The Hunger Games? Um, that, that's the biggest demo, is everybody who likes that kind of thing. But those kind of um, what they call empowered female characters, which is awful. But those kind of characters are revolutionary in, in movies and television. Uh, Jessica Jones in Netflix coming up. But comic books are all, one of the things, no, I didn't mean to give it up so much for comic books, but comic books have been here for now for years already. Uh, comics, comic books have become, in this weird way, even though there's some sexism and racism in some of the industry, uh, for the books themselves, they've become this kind of empowered female medium where there are some amazing writers like uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick is the one that's first to mind. I'm sorry? UTLM. Yeah, is she really? Mm -hmm. she's a Portland resident. Um, <laughs> so is her husband. Matt he, Fraction. Did he go here? No. We win. <laughs> but, um, sorry. Uh, it's, um, but um, Mike Richardson started Dark Horse as a PSU. It's, uh, <laughs> we're, not, we're, we're not competing. We're not competing. But the point is that there are all these strong female characters. Comic book companies have absolutely discovered this. DC has a new line of all uh, female superheroes. Two lines. Uh, I forget one. One is called Bombshells, which is supposed to be like a parody of, like, if you think of Marilyn Monroe as a bombshell. This is kind of a takeoff of that, of all their female characters together. Um, they've highlighted Harley Quinn as one of their biggest characters. Um, and the new one, I don't remember what it's called. And they, they also have a kid's line, Tiny Titans and all this other stuff to bring. If you're thinking about it, that old dude, that 50-year-old, 50 doesn't sound so old to everybody in the room, uh, but th that, that old dude who's reading comic books, um, when he's dead, they can't have zero business. They don't want that to die out. 
And so they're very much aware uh, of that dynamic. And, and that sensibility is, I want to appeal to them too, because I am that guy, right? And I, I love that too. But it can't be just that. It's, it's got to be, what does everybody like? And that, as a programmer, or I'm not, I don't call myself a programmer. That's the past. That's, that's so 2000. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm a curator. And when I curate stuff, I need to try to figure out what's going to appeal to you all. You know, does that mean, um, one of the ideas is, does that mean 50s horror movies? Or 50s horror movies so old and done that you, and so available elsewhere that that's really not so cool anymore? Is that um, Roger Corman movies? Is that Hammer horror movies? Is that, and I... You could say yes, make me feel good. Is that British content that we don't get to see, whether it's Doctor Who, obviously, but um, Torchwood or some amazing other, Spaced. Uh, anybody ever see Spaced? Incredible show, incredible show with um, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright and Nick Frost before they were all superstars. Probably the best thing they ever did. It is, I think it's a mind blower. Um, is that a good show? Do, do you guys want to see that? That's the kind of question I'm asking. Um, it becomes very tricky because every one of these things that comes with a price tag, nothing is free. So yeah, how do you decide, two questions, and then I'm going to open it to the audience. How do you decide what to acquire, A, uh, as much as you can say, and B, again, like how much does your old perspective of programming for cable translate? Like what is new? What, do you have to, what are you learning that's new, or how are you thinking differently? Well, I'll say that this is sort of funny, and I'll, I won't name names. My... I work for, my new job is within uh, cable distribution, which is really interesting. My old job was at a TV network. I don't work for a TV network, and I, I'm very happy not to. I, I loved it then, and I don't work for one now, and that's great, too. I work for a worldwide distribution, Lionsgate Worldwide Distribution. So the same people that, that put the movies in the theater and put the movies on television are who I work for. So I'm a kind of that, but I'm also a platform. So it's, it's I'm a... a Old boss used to say, "A feathered fish." I'm neither here nor there. I'm I, a unicorn. That's a unicorn. <laughs> I'll take that, right? Um, so, um, what do we decide what to do? Um, cost is going to be a critical issue. And my, what my boss said was, we, we, "I started my conversations with all my old relationships: uh, Warner Brothers, uh, Disney, um, Paramount. Sony, Paramount, all, all, all the, the big guys." With all my old pals that said, okay, we're licensing stuff. Could you pitch us stuff? And I don't think this is any secret. I'll, I'll, I won't name names on this. What they'll say is, we would love to sell you stuff. Um, we just sold this, The Matrix. This is a great example. Everybody see The Matrix? You know that movie, right? It's a Warner Brothers movie, fantastic movie. We just sold the movie to um, a bunch of cable networks. We know what it's worth. It's worth a lot of money. <laughs> six or six. Six digits. It's worth at least six digits, somewhere in the six-digit ballpark every year. That's what you're going to pay to. Well, that's great. If I bought that, I would be able to buy four more movies, or roughly, and then I'd be done. Or, you know, um, that's not going to work for me. I, ca I can't afford to buy Ferraris right now. So that that model of we're in TV terms where content is relatively cheap, not cheap for television, relatively, you could make your money back because you knew where the revenue was coming from, whether it was, oh, we could talk about this too, through advertisers or cable fees, you knew roughly what your revenue was. We don't know yet because we're, we're experimenting. So we can't afford to sell everything or it's irresponsible to do that. 
So I have to figure out, and I love doing this too, how do you do this on the cheap or with economically responsible? And that, that is where you get a little more creative. That's where you say, okay, this space is a good example. Um, do you, anybody know an old uh, British show called U, uh, UFO or Thunderbirds or any of the ITC stuff? Um, that's, people don't know that. They should know that stuff. It's cool. Um, that's, these are 40-year-old uh, shows that are sci-fi shows that are cult, one-time cult shows I think could be revived. Probably won't be as expensive because they're a little further down the life cycle. And so one of the questions is, do you buy big things further down the life cycle? Do you buy... Uh, Escape from New York, the original. It's 40 years off of its life cycle, but it's a, it was a big book, Planet of the Apes, the original. Do you buy that? 40 years ago, maybe it's cheaper. Or do you buy um, smaller films? And this is what's really intriguing to me, and I'd be very curious to hear what you guys think. Was one of the ideas I have is, what if we buy um, fantastic, fast, South by Southwest style fare of more indie sci-fi? Uh, some people are calling lo-fi sci-fi, if you guys have heard that term. Um, what if we buy that kind of stuff that, that is more contemporary that might resonate that nobody sees because it's too small and nobody talks about that stuff? Is that compelling? And are there kind of relationships for that? Don't know. Are there international, international distributors that we can work with and buy stuff that nobody has seen um, at a different price point, maybe. There are some interesting documentaries about comic books that are, have been done by, uh, I forgot the name of the company. Some little company, the BBC has done some, ITC has done some, um, Channel 4 has done some. Do we buy from them? I, do, I don't know. This is what we're wrestling with this week, actually. I'm, I'm dealing with a, a lot of these things because another question is, uh, I, I work in conjunction with Lionsgate. What do we buy from Lionsgate? I, do, I don't have a really good answer. Well, I'm lucky enough to work with Lionsgate, who has made it, uh, a, a lot of really, John Feltheimer, really su super smart decisions buying companies like Summit, which has made a lot of young skewing action-adventure movies. They were Red, were they not? The original studio yes. for Red? Uh, a theatrical film called Red, based on a comic book, which was a sensational hit for TNT. Uh, big hit in the movie theater. It came out with a sequel, less strong a hit. That, maybe that's a good one. Um, we're not going to get... What I told you before about bargains uh, or with synergy, we're still going to have to pay. Somebody has to pay something uh, to make somebody whole on that. Uh, but for, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. I, I have ideas. And you'll see this thing materialize. Other people have done this kind of thing. And um, has anybody ever heard? Of, there's a uh, competitor that I will not name because it, it, uh, I don't want to. <laughs> uh, we decided to go a different route, and their route was to license a bunch of stuff from uh, exploitation movie makers, not in the 70s exploitation student nurse movie way, in the direct-to-video way of, uh, anybody ever seen, I don't want to name a studio, because uh, uh, there are some direct-to-video people who have some kind of fan bases, with uh, tend to be gore-heavy stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to say anything. <laughs> uh, tend to be gore-heavy stuff. Uh, that young people like that too. You know, is that the right move? To me, I don't think so. To me, that's bottom feeding. And to be honest, Comic-Con is better than that. I think Comic-Con as an institution is better than that. So I don't think we have to bottom feed. And uh, 
So part of this is figuring out what the brand of Comic-Con is and trying to find product that really reinforces that. Absolutely. And cultivating the brand in turn, right? Absolutely. And Comic-Con has done some research on that, and Comic-Con has been really good. Um, there's a, a marketing person there who's, who's fantastic, who really, and who I'm meeting with this week, who really understands his brand and knows what's good for it and not. And what's interesting about Comic-Con, just to give it up for them, they're a 501c3 organization. So, um, not, they're a nonprofit, and what they're dedicated to is education in the comic, comic arts and entertainment in general. And so the educational component is really important to them. It is to me, too. I'm, uh, I'm not just a UT guest. I'm a UT student, too, right? So the, the old hair club. Uh, and <laughs> was. Um, but I, I believe in education as well, and I, I believe in families, too. So I, I think those components will be an important part of what we do. Phil, this is great. Um, I want to give at least a few minutes to open it up for the no students idea what time it is, to so. ask. No, no, I, I, if I don't look over there, then I don't know. So um, a few minutes to open it up for the students to ask questions that they might have. If there's, yeah, Josh and then Max. Um, I'm just kind of curious personally, has it just been since you started all this Comic-Con that you've kind of gotten into that scene or have you always done this as a kid and that sort of thing. Yeah. Sometimes this stuff comes honestly, you know, and um, it, it, you know, it's, what did they say, follow your muse or something like that? I, I never believed in that kind of thing because it sounds like happy bullshit to me, but it's, uh, but I did it. It's, I did it anyway. And uh, when I started, uh, God's honest truth, when I started at TNT, that first year of TNT, I set my DV, my uh, VCR. Anybody know what a VCR is? I set my VCR every single night and recorded late night movies off TNT. That that was my introduction to TNT. So I, I, I was a fan a year before I started there. Um, and I, I love old movies. And that's, with any luck, I'll be writing uh, a dissertation about broadcasting because I, I love broadcasting and old movies. I really, even though I spew a lot of hatred, I love it too. Um, and I, I've loved comic books from the very beginning. And the, the reason, part of the reason I got this gig was the distributor who hired me knew a distributor I would worked with at another company who said, you should talk to Phil because he's into this stuff. And one of the things that's really important to comic, and I'm not alone at, at the Comic-Con group, because uh, kind of the, the um, the test, the acid test for whether or not you belong there is whether or not you're a nerd. Because if you're not, you're not speaking to the, you don't know what you're talking about. So it's, uh, it's maybe it's scary for some of you to come visit us, but we're, we all come by this stuff, honestly. And um, it's really important to me, and we've delivered on it to be uh, diverse in, in terms of ethnicity and gender too because I think that's really important and when you read about this stuff and demographics are so critical for anything else you look at the country is changing anybody who doesn't believe this stuff is uh, uh, unsuccessful po uh, political candidate number one and number two and just being left by the wayside because the country has changed whether you wanted to or not and one of the demographics that's really interesting in this space if you look at um, Spanish speaking, American Spanish speaking populations and their, the penetration of OTT and SVOD I, I think is disproportionately high as I believe it is uh, for African American communities. It absolutely was true for cable. Uh, you, you have to attend to all of that. Just even if you're not, if even if you're a bad person and you don't like uh, other groups, you got to realize the country has changed. Otherwise, you'll be out of business. So even, so. I don't remember what that tirade was about. So even if you don't have a soul, you should do the right thing. <laughs> Probably better to have a soul. <laughs> uh, 
I've got two questions, if that's okay. Um, my first question is just um, in this process of kind of um, creating content for that fanatic kind of video game um, kind of demographic, um, who are you guys going to, and, and making an OTT service out of it, um, who, who are you guys going to see as your main kind of competition in doing this? Is it going to be like the potential for, I guess, like successful cable properties that do that sort of thing? Um, to make OTT services like yours, or yeah, that's a really good question. And um, a lot of cable networks are getting into the space. If they ha aren't now, they will be. When I was at TNT and TBS, we had digital platforms. They they weren't very robust, but they existed. If you go to uh, TBS.tv right now, I, I think you can see some of our efforts. We did a lot of uh, attempts. Uh, corporately, Time Warner was one of the participants in TV Everywhere. I haven't really followed that lately. It's, it's, it's been troubled a little bit uh, as a way to move forward. But TV Everywhere, if it, if it really moves forward, I think is kind of a competitor. Um, I'm a recent subscriber to, I'm a cord shaver or cutter or something. I don't know what I call myself. Uh, but I, I subscribe to a lot of OTT services and mostly watch them through Roku. I don't know, does anybody use Roku? I like Roku a lot. I think it's super cool. Um, it's cheap. It's like 40 bucks for a thing you stick in your, the back of your TV. And it's amazing how many services are there. There are a lot of services. You flip through. There's hundred, literally hundreds of channels uh, that you could choose from. They're all my competitor. But remember, Comic-Con has a brand. Comic-Con is, if, if you're competing with a bunch of different people, so you have to distinguish yourself from the pack. Um, you could start you start a sports network tomorrow if you want. Go nuts. That's fantastic. Um, you're you're going to have to fight ESPN and Fox Sports South or whoever it is, but you're going to have to fight ESPN. They have to, they're the brand leader. If you're not a brand leader, you have to figure out another niche for yourselves. Um, I think Comic-Con is the brand leader in terms of this kind of content right now. New York Comic-Con can do their own thing. Um, and I don't doubt that they're, they're making this kind of initiative. I'd be shocked if not. I'd be shocked if, it's almost as if you, if you say the name of a company, I'd be shocked if they weren't doing it. I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't do it because everybody and their brother is doing it. The cost of entry doesn't seem to be super high. The cost of expertise could be high because not everybody, there's a lot of bad channels. I don't know how many uh, channels you've been watching on Roku, but there's a lot of stuff that's very terrible. <laughs> um, and you can see, and one of the interesting things is, I don't mean to get too much in this, but this is something I'm struggling with too. As a, let's say you're in the magazine business. I just dropped my uh, subscription to, I shouldn't say this out, that's so mean, uh, to the New York Observer, a great newspaper, you know, it's been in existence for whatever it is, 60 years, 40 years. Uh, but I just dropped my subscription um, because I have too many subscriptions. But the question is, how do you get a person Two questions. How do you get a person to pay X number of dollars a month to be into this? And two, how do you keep them paying? Those, those questions are very different questions from anything I encountered in cable television. Because that's not, I, peop, other people answered similar questions. Those weren't my questions. My questions were, what could you do to get the best rating? What could you do to deliver on that demographic for an advertiser? What could you, do? those are really the primary questions. Um, those questions don't exist in my new world. Nobody cares. And my, my, this was the story I was going to tell. My, some of my distribution partners said when it came to buying movies, um, 
from studios. What he said is, when they see you coming, they see Turner money, you have to explain to them, you don't have Turner money anymore. Right. And, that, and that's, that is the truth. We pay differently, we measure differently. We don't know how we measure yet. We want to measure in terms of enthusiasm, you know, and, and speaking to that community. So in terms of your question was about competitors, there are a lot of them, I think, Whatever we were aware of, there's some great services, and I'll, I'll, I'll name some of my favorites. Fandor, if you guys, anybody subscribe to Fandor? I, I love Fandor. Is it? And uh, among the things they do com as a competitor that I think is really great, do you get the emails like every single day or something like that? <laughs> it's like, I don't want to drop that subscription because I like hearing from them. And that's partly, that's stupid, right? Because, you know, it's a robot, you know, it's not a person. But that's a really smart way of not acquiring uh, subscribers, which it, it's called uh, acquisition and maintenance, I guess. Um, and you are going to have the monthly subscription fee, just like all the other OTT services. Yes. We, we will not be, there's all these acronyms, AVOD. We will not be AVOD. We will not be FreeVOD. FreeVOD is um, Snap Films. I think Snap Films. Snap Films, is that free? I think Snap Films is free. We're not FreeVOD. We're not AVOD, which is Hulu, if you, don't, if you pay $7.90. Anybody subscribe to Hulu? Okay. Um, Hulu's pretty great, too. Um, we're not AVOD, which is Advertiser Video On Demand, or Ad-Supported Video On Demand. We lost the AS, because I guess ASVOD <laughs> sounds bad. ASVOD sounds bad. Um, but we, we will be um, ASVOD, which is Subscription Video On Demand. So we'll be paying X number of dollars per month, or a, a better rate, obviously, for annual subs. So we're actually out of time, it may be, unless oh. we have maybe one more question at the like, last. Oh, let's do Jenny you can come up and ask after if you want to do that. Um, and Max, you can come and ask your other question after as well if you want to. Um, so you said earlier that you didn't believe in the long tail. I don't know if this is like a really like long like, answer if we have time for it, but I was really interested in like. I shouldn't say not believe. <laughs> I think it's been overstated because I, I think when it was very simplistically said, well, just buy all this old stuff because you, you, you always have somebody interested in the old stuff. Part, uh, part of the formula, and that guy, um, Chris Anderson, he's a really shrewd marketer for himself. And he's a really good brander for himself. And he had that book called Free, that was the follow-up. Not so well received. I think everybody by that time realized you have no idea what revenue is about, Chris. You don't know. And so, yes, all that stuff is available. You can look at... Um, a million channels on hundreds of channels of Roku running um, public domain content. You can see all these old serials. It's fantastic. You can see these Buck Rogers serials. It's fantastic. Nobody's making a dime off of that. So it's like, yeah, the long term, long tail existed. It, it existed long before Chris Anderson was born. It was called the library, right? <laughs> and so he's, he's very shrewd at marketing. He doesn't understand, I think, basic business relationship. There's not a way to make a lot of money off those, those tiny incremental payments. So the distinction is whether you can monetize it, yes. not necessarily and, and his, whether you can the reason, view it. A lot of people snap up uh, marketing theories, and uh, if you want to get into the real money, it's come up with one of these books. Uh, that's <laughs> what I want to do, you know, it's because it, inevitably all these books, people buy the books because they hear it's the new thing, and then they, the, the book, the theory is cockamamie or just old hat and or uh, disproven. Um, steps to a uh, power to greatness, or there was a, a really famous one, um, uh, steps to greatness or from good to great. 
Oh man, I shouldn't. I don't remember. Fortunately, I don't remember the guy's name. Um, good to great. You look at the book. Um, I think a quarter of the people in Good to Great are now in prison or something like that because <laughs> it didn't work out. Half the companies didn't succeed afterwards. If you take any, any kind of cockamamie theory, you can do whatever you want. Crack the nut of that and do it because you can't, and one of the things you, when you, you deal with the audience is you can't second guess an audience forever. And one of the things about broadcast television is like, you know what, I know what I want to make and you're going to watch it. That's, that's what old broadcast was. I, look, I went to school. I, I, I wrote stuff on Broadway. You know, I'm Clifford Odets or whoever it is. I know how to make great stuff. You're going to watch it. When there were three channels, that, that was maybe true. Um, once the cable universe came along, it's like, well, you guys have to tell us a little bit what you want to say. Now with so many uh, venues for th really things for that you want to say, uh, I, I think it's a different kind of relationship. That's actually a really good remark to end on, actually. And sorry, sorry we about the questions. Over, but still, that was great. Thank you well, so much. Like Thank, you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Media Industry Conversations. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. To learn more about our program and to hear past guests, visit rtf.utexas.edu slash mic. This course was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary with lead TA Tim Piper, and the program was produced and edited by the technical TA, that's me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another Media Industry Conversation. Get along, little dopey, get along.